if you want to arbitrage that spread over you know, 7, 10, 15, 20 years of a course of real estate investing, it's a worthwhile investment to learn real estate. If you don't, then it's not. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. But before we dig into today's guest, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is up, man? Well, Cody, if anybody who follows the blog knows I love live music, and I got to get really back in the swing of things this last week. My buddy TJ came down from Dallas, and we uh, caught a hearty show He's a, he's a local Mississippi guy, so it was cool to get to see a Mississippi guy down here in Austin. He's doing big things, writing a lot of songs for some big artists. And then uh, we kind of ran around on Friday, checked out some happy hours, showed him a local bourbon distillery. And then for the weekend, we headed down to San Antonio, got to get my pizza game back on. This time, not for sale, though. These were for friends, but cooked six awesome pizzas. The little uni just continues to impress. And then went to another concert. It's a little band called Copper Chief, who... They can really rock out, but it was a cool little venue, just kind of in New Braunfels, which is just north of San Antonio. How about you, Cody? I also had a pretty eventful weekend. I didn't get to go to any concerts, and Justin, I did see those Snapchats. I was totally jealous. I haven't been to a concert since, man, I don't even know, probably a couple months before COVID shut everything down. But so Friday, I went and visited some of my college friends in Boston. We just had a kind of reunion night. I saw some friends I hadn't seen in a long time. Saturday, I got to go to my little cousin Sawyer's baseball game. The first time I ever saw him play, he was batting a thousand, crushing it, making plays at shortstop. Then that night, actually, we went to a ramen place. And when I say ramen, most people are probably thinking the crappy little $1 box that you might be eating if there's nothing else in your house and you're just kind of scouring through your pantry. But no, this is a legit nice ramen place, like really nice aesthetics, awesome food. It was phenomenal, cool drinks, just a really cool vibe. And then Sunday was Mother's Day, so I got to hang out with my mom. We got Applebee's because that's her favorite restaurant. Then we went for a little bit of a hike, just hanging out with my brother and my mom. And then now we're, you know, back to the work week. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote-unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. So Cody, very excited for the guests we have on today, because if you're into real estate, then you know the Bigger Pockets moniker, you know that website, you know, they got the publishing arm now, they've got the podcast, and Scott is now the CEO of Bigger Pockets. But you know, he didn't always start out that way. He was in a finance job that he didn't really like, edges into personal finance, which leads him to real estate. 
you know, he meets the the folks over Bigger Pockets really early on, and now he's sitting there, CEO of Bigger Pockets, with an awesome portfolio and a book that changed a lot of people's life called Set for Life. What do you think about it, Cody? Yeah, I got to say, Justin, I really enjoyed this episode. I've always admired Scott and the things he's been doing, especially since I've been following him. Like I mentioned in the episode, we met at Camp Fi in 2018. That was right after Set for Life was actually released. And he has just gone on since then to do even more incredible things. And we kind of talk about how all of that is possible. What are some of his daily habits, some of his daily routines, whether or not he thinks real estate is a viable option for everybody, how he thinks about the framework for financial independence and how you should kind of optimize your life to get the most out of your best years. Just so much packed into this episode. I'm really excited to finally get to release this one. And if you want to access anything we talk about today, contact Scott, just get a quick summary of the episode. You can do all of that at our show notes at thefyshow.com slash Scott Trench. That's thefyshow.com slash Scott Trench. Yeah, so I was born, I'm just, uh, never mind. Um, <laughs> I, I think my, start, my story starts after I graduate college. So after I graduate college, I'm fortunate to graduate with no debt, thanks to mom and dad. I have a few thousand dollars left over from working side jobs that covered my expenses generally during college, usually in the summer, uh, summer jobs and those kinds of things. I work hard and save up and blow it all on natural light during college. And then after I graduated, I went on a nice a little Europe trip and blew the rest of my money. So I started my career with like a few thousand dollars at most um, on my bank account. I probably graduated with like 8,000, spent five on this trip. And then I don't know. So I started my career in 2013 as a financial analyst. And I'm very ambitious. I want to get ahead and, and climb the corporate ladder or be successful or whatever it is. And I quickly become very disillusioned with that because I realize that if things go very, very well in my career, I'm going to go from being financial analyst to financial analyst one, to financial analyst two, to financial analyst three, to senior financial analyst, to finance manager, to senior finance manager, to manager, of, uh, director of finance, senior director, VP, senior VP, CFO. And that's if things go really well. And at the end of the day, am I really going to want to be CFO? And so that was kind of the wake up call for me. And I kind of simultaneously or that process evolved alongside me discovering this fire movement through various Google searches and all that kind of good stuff. And I, I couldn't tell you what came first, but the the one that left the most impression on me was a guy named Mr. Money Mustache uh, and his blog. And I read every single article and completely drank the Kool Aid. So I probably discovered Fi through some other mechanism and and got it through there. And at the time, I'm making forty eight thousand dollars a year. I am becoming obsessed with this Fi concept, and I'm realizing like, oh great, I have a model. Like instead of retiring in forty years, I can retire in fifteen if I follow Mr. Money Mustache. But that's also 15 years. That's a, that's like half a lifetime away to somebody who's 23. How do I compress that even further? You know, not just by saving. You know, I can get my savings rate to 80, percent but there's only so much you can do on 48 thousand dollars a year. Even as a single guy, you can't get to 85 percent unless you're willing to do some some pretty crazy stuff. So that's where I came to Bigger Pockets and kind of discovered the concept of real estate investing. And at first, it was like real estate seems like a way to get better returns than the stock market and move that timeline from like a 15 year fi to like a 10 year fi. And then I found house hacking and I was like, oh, that makes a huge difference because if I don't have any housing expense, my number I need goes way down. And now it's like five years to five or whatever it was. And so I became obsessed with bigger pockets and Mr. Money Mustache. And so that was my first year of my career is just kind of like beginning to save up really frugally and build up a stockpile so that I could race towards a house hack. That that was an evolution of about six months between that early 2000, like, like August, 2013, and like spring 2014 probably was where I began that aggressive evolution of like, like okay, I'm going to position my whole life 
everything, where I live, where I work, what I read, my goal setting thing, who I connect, who I socialize with around this goal of achieving five very quickly. And then part of that process, I joined a mastermind group with local real estate investors because that's what they told you to do in bigger pockets. I had no business being in this mastermind group. I kind of lucked into it. I met a guy on a park bench and he invited me because I was so enthusiastic. So I'm with real entrepreneurs as this 23-year-old kid who's a financial analyst at a Fortune 500 company. I'm meeting with them at 7 a.m. on Thursday mornings before work, sometimes showing up late to work because we go a little long. And through after, because I'm lucky to be there, I invite every one of them out to lunch to meet in person to person. And so that's where I, through that networking, I happened to be in the same co-working space. One of them happened to work in the same co-working space as Josh Dorkin, the founder of Bigger Pockets. And so that's the next evolution here is I joined Bigger Pockets in late 2014, about a, a July, about 11, 12 months after I started my first job and have made this hard transition. And I'm the third employee as director of operations at the three-person company, which is a very lofty title. That means you do all of the important work, of course. And so that's my career. Like, like, And then that's that's how I got started with this is I joined Bigger Pockets as a third employee. I bought the house hack two or three months later. And from there, my income began to not explode. It was, it was you know, it's exploded over seven years. I've been in Bigger Pockets almost seven years now. Um, and I'm the CEO now with that. And we're 25 to 30 times bigger than, I, than we were when I joined, which has been a wild ride. You know, so my income has grown as I assume more and more responsibility in the company grew, luck of being at a, at a startup that early. My expenses have stayed low because my house hack enabled me to basically live for free or very, very cheap. And I made a lot of other decisions to keep my expenses low, like buying a Corolla and paying it off slowly. I still drive my 2014 Corolla today. I shouldn't have bought it new back in 2014. And, and then I've been investing that entire time as well, dumping gradually larger and larger amounts of money into the stock market. So I've been like an index fund. So I've been, you know, at first it was a few hundred bucks a month and it was, a, you know, a thousand, then it was 1200, then it was 2000, 3000. And then the number is just slowly, there's never been an event for my investing. It's always been just a slow grind of what whatever my savings rate is, is kind of creeping up and it goes up in stages when I get a raise or sales go really well, or my house hack reduces my living expenses and those types of things. And simultaneously, I've also been investing in, in real estate. And so that, that would be the kind of highlights of my overall journey. I know I'm talking for a long time, so feel free to interrupt me with the next question whenever you're ready. And the other part of it was obviously the bigger pocket story where the company grew very dramatically. And then we brought on private equity partners in 2018. And I was fortunate enough to be tapped by Josh to lead that process. So, you know, getting to bring on and, and sell parts of the equity and, and bring on a partner with, with for a major business is a huge career milestone for a lot of folks. And that was a very big bonus for me. So that if there was an event in my timeline, it was that event. And that kind of trained, kind of like put me way over the edge for FI and, and passed it. So it's no longer like about the FI journey anymore with my financial journey. It's kind of just more like, I'm going to adhere to good fundamentals. I wrote a book called Set for Life. So it'd be very embarrassing to go bankrupt um, at this point. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to kind of build a stable long-term financial position and keep piling on the investments in a sustainable way while I really enjoy the job here as the CEO of Bigger Pockets. So you gave us a ton to dig into there, but before we get like too far past where you initially jumped into your journey, I kind of want to talk about like the, the skill sets that you came in with naturally. Cause I feel like all the people we talk to who discover FI, like there's parts that they already kind of had before they even started. And then there's the parts that they really learn. So you definitely very, you know, have a lot of energy, you're analytical. You can tell that right off the bat. What about the frugality part? What about the saving part? Was that something that 
you know, 23 year old you already had, or was that something that you really had to learn through like devoting yourself to it and, and drinking the Kool-Aid? A- absolutely not. And and the goal is not to spend less. The goal is to achieve FI. And once you're past FI, you just spend a minority of your passive income forever. And as long as that minority, that passive income is growing, you can, you can expand to actually have a very lavish lifestyle if that's what you want. But as long as it's not impacting your freedom. So I would not say, I would say my biggest advantage coming into this is that I am very, very coachable, I believe. Like when I, when I play sports in high school, coachable, I would do exactly, I just program guy buy into exactly what the program is when I'm trying to attack Phi coachable. I just listen to exactly what the bigger pockets guys and at the time. And then, you know, I'm not saying you should do exactly what the bigger pockets guys say now. It's not a plug, but like, and what Mr. Money Mustache said, I just like tried to enact their philosophies once they resonated with me to the best of my ability. So you know, it, it's, it's, I wanted, I, I have a, a great deal of ambition and I'm very cocky. So I, I like to think I'm going to win. So I have optimism and those types of things. And so I just kind of, and I think I, because I'm uh, with that coachable thing, I try to read a ton and learn. I probably, I probably consumed 50 books a year on average for those first three years and probably slowed down to like 20 books a year now, which is still a large amount. But you know, that those are probably my big advantages coming into the situation. I had lots of other privilege advantages, but yeah, those are my advantages for personality traits, perhaps. And for those folks, especially younger folks, I know, Scott, I mean, you harp on this hardcore and set for life. Like, it's so important to get those early years right. Like you just mentioned, you can literally, you know, you can be super frugal throughout your 20s. But if you do that and then build up these investment vehicles, these passive income vehicles, real estate, stock market, whatever, then you can like kind of ball out in your 30s. Like you might already have that solid financial footing. But, you know, most people still kind of thwart those ideas away. I have a lot of friends, very few friends that I can kind of convince to get on this five train. You know, obviously, you're mentioning you had some of these advantages. You had the I'm coachable. You were <laughs> I'm going to be everybody else. I'm a I'm cocky. I have a winner's attitude. But maybe for those folks who don't have that drive, don't have that ambition. Do you have any pointers or tips to kind of get people on the frugality train? And I'd, lo- I'd love to just hear maybe the whole ideology and mindset behind set for life and why it's so important to get those early years right to enjoy the fruits of the labor later. Well, it's 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 human life and optimizing it to the best of your ability. Like what is the, what other higher cause is that, right? And so like, what's the point? Like when you become financially free in your 20s or your 30s, like you get to spend the rest of your, the best years of your life contributing massively to society. So it, it, first of all, it should be selfish. Like, great, you're going to be happier, have a chance to con- completely command your schedule and do exactly what you want. And second, it should be altruistic because like, honestly, like maybe you're like, I'm going to retire and drink margaritas on the beach, but great. That's not what you're actually going to do. What you're actually going to do is you're going to go start eat businesses like Cody and, and do some really cool stuff. That's going to make an impact on people's lives. And you're going to have way greater odds of, of achieving a massive positive impact on society from position of financial freedom early in life than you will later. So the stakes couldn't be higher in my opinion, you know, second to like health and family and a couple of other things, but from a career perspective, like that's it. Like, what, what else is what else is better than that? Um, that said, you're never going to convince everybody. So you can hear it and they can listen or, or not. But if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably pretty interested uh, in this. And so I don't need to convince you about this, but maybe that's a helpful framework for convincing, trying to convince your friends. You know, some people go into this and they end up living life, you know, one foot in each section where they're maybe they're still doing their corporate thing and then maybe they're not. Some people go all in. When was it where you realized like, hey, I've got to let go of this financial analyst life if I'm going to reach my full potential. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm spending very little, I'm bringing my lunch to work every day and eating my desk. And I'm like, I'm going to be financially free. I'm talking with my guy and this is a buddy that I had and played rugby with actually. Uh, and he was like, 
you ain't going to get rich sitting in that chair right there. And I, the way he said it, I'm butchering it. It's not a good quote, but like that, that's how that resonated with me. I was like, he is, he is, he is right. There is, that is, that is the bogey in the room. This game, I cannot, I cannot win this game. I'm going to get a, a, a $6,000 raise every year or two. And that's it. I never, I will never have a big event. I will never have a chance to do it. I have to do something else. And so I began doing like side hustles and other stuff to try to, and it was like, okay, the big elephant in the room is like, I'm a cocky guy. I think I've got some potential here and I cannot achieve success in two hours a night on the side after my commute and full day of work with my best self. I'm not a morning person. You're not going to get me up at four o'clock in the morning to work on this before work. So that leaves the weekends where my, I, I also am 23 or 24 and I'm like, guess what? Like I want to go out town on the town and have some fun on the weekends. That is very important. So when am I, when am I going to do this? I have to do it during the full-time day. I have to put myself in a position where my eight to 10 hours a day and the work on the job are spent maximizing my potential. And that became very obvious within a few months of that, that guy saying that to me. And I began looking for other work, like becoming a real estate agent, and then obviously fell into the bigger pockets job as a result of that search. I just love the two things. I resonate so hard with those. The two first things you said there about the corporate job, I was in literally the exact same type of role where it's like financial analyst one, financial analyst two, financial analyst three, senior financial analyst. And you're just hitting your head on a ceiling year after year. So I, as you know, I bailed out of that quick, kind of like you did, Scott. And also the second thing I wanted to kind of talk about, and you mentioned this earlier, was that you've already hit fine. You don't care about the money anymore. Most of the stuff you're doing now, it's altruism. That's, that's not true. So I want to, I just want to stop there. <laughs> all right, all right, it's, let's dig in I, then. <laughs> I don't need the money to maintain my current lifestyle, right? But like, I, and I, I love Mr. Money Mustache and I think he's great. I, I spend, I spend, I don't know, like my, my spending is probably ballooned from like 25,000 to 50,000 a year, something in that ballpark, right? Which is not a ton for a CEO to spend most likely on, on, on their stuff, right? I got a paid off car. I got no consumer debt, that kind of stuff. But like, why would I not be interested in piling money on top of that so that my passive income base can go from, I don't know, a hundred K a year to 250 or 300 K a year while I'm working. There's no downside to that. And that gives me the option to expand my lifestyle downstream and have more lifestyle options. So just, just want to caveat with that, that there is always that element, even after like the FI is a moving target. I know that like when I have kids, if we have kids, me and my wife, that may expand for some, and I should be covered even with that and some of those types of things. But like, why would you not always, if you're enjoying it, continue to apply the philosophy. So just want to, sorry, just wanted to interrupt there with that, that yeah, it's, it's not about the money, but like, yeah, of course that's always beneficial to, to stack onto the pile and, and, and add to my, to my wealth and, and passive income. Where I was going with that. And I'm glad you gave me the clarification because that totally makes sense. And I'm kind of in the same boat, but I was going to ask when you started five versus now, when you first heard about Mr. Money Mustache and bigger pockets, how have like your personal priorities shifted? Because obviously you mentioned the money is still a factor, but you know, have you given more thought to your mental health, your physical health, maybe family, friends? I know you mentioned like when you're 23, 24, you, you still want to go out on the weekends and I'm sure maybe you're still doing fun stuff on the weekends now. I know you're not a guy who's just going to you know sit there and work 120 hours a week just to hit the next million dollar mark or whatever. But I'd love to hear how your goals have kind of shifted and changed over the years. Yeah, that that's right. That you, you nailed it there. I wouldn't I, I I couldn't have come up with that on the spot here, but that's exactly that's exactly what it is. There's like a wheel of life, right? Like they, there's a, there's those diagrams and you're like, "Oh, am I a 1 to 10? Is my wheel out of balance in these areas?" right? It's just m- money is not the top priority anymore, right? It's not it's not even the top 5 out of those categories because I've got a surplus. I've got a framework. I dump the excess pile into the stock market or into my next real estate investment. I'm good to go there. So exactly. Things like 
impact, you know, and it's it's more like a career. Like, what is Bigger Pockets positive impact being? That's my top priority, rather than like the financial profile of some of those things. What is my health looking like? What's my relationship with my wife or friends and family? Like some of these years I've become, I can get really obsessed with my work. And so I'm not maintaining my relationships the right way. And so that's where like my goals and vision are more oriented towards right now is, is solving those problems. Like my wife and I have a quarterly goal meeting where we just take a half day or a day and go somewhere and and hang out, do a walk and then set some goals. And we were like, we did them and none of the, the, no financial goals made it into the, the top of the list of course, they're still there. There's still goals in the on the paper that downstream, but they're just not as important anymore because of the, the it allows for other priorities. So there's a lot of different ways of you know going down this journey to financial independence. A lot of different ways of getting there. Obviously, your bread and butter is real estate. When you're looking at somebody who has a surplus of cash coming in, they have they have a high savings rate. Do you have this feeling like? no questions asked, they should also be investing in real estate. Or do you kind of say, hey, you know, it's not for everyone. Some people just, you know, aren't made out to be not necessarily that you have to be a landlord, because obviously you can get property managers, and things like that. But real estate isn't for everyone. Or do you think no, no questions asked, everyone should be getting into real estate? Great question. I think that the entry point to getting into real estate is between 500 and 1000 hours of self education. So if you earn $200,000 a year, your time is worth $100 per hour, and you're beginning on the beginning cusp of that being a prohibitive investment of your time to get into real estate investing. If you desire to make, if you want to be go from $200,000 a year to being worth $10 million in five to 10 years, real estate's a great investment of your time. But if you're looking to hit FI at two, three million and kind of just kind of chill out from that point with like a, 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 a fire there, real estate's probably not appropriate for that person. They should probably just focus on working their likely 50 to 60 hour a week job, saving a tremendous amount of money, living a middle-class lifestyle and dumping it into index funds or something more passive and not trying to get that chase, that higher return that real estate can offer. The spread between like real estate and stocks, I think is probably for your typical investor who puts in the 500 to a thousand hours, probably like six, 7% yields on average over a five, seven year hold period, if you're doing it right. Right. And so that that's what you should be thinking is going to happen. Your model should tell you it's going to be like a 20% CAGR, but in reality, it'll be like a 15, 17% CAGR versus a 10% or so return that you can get in the stock market. So I think if your goal is FI in a reasonable period of time at a lean rate, that spread is not great enough to justify the 500 to $1,000 investment for your very, very high income earners. I think it's a very, very worthwhile investment for your lower income earners because you're going because that shaves off a significant number of years to your FI journey if you're willing to put in place that investment. And it's also worthwhile for folks who want to arbitrage that. If, if you want to arbitrage that spread over you know, 7, 10, 15, 20 years of a course of real estate investing, it's a worthwhile investment to learn real estate. If you don't, then it's not. I've never thought about it in that framework, but that makes a whole lot of sense. Because I was thinking in my head, like counterpoints to the things you were saying. And I'm like, and I think, you know, our friends, James and Emily from Rethink the Rat Race, they retired at like 27 and 28, but they're super frugal and their real estate spits out like I think it's 40 or 45,000 when we interviewed them per year. So it makes a lot of sense for them to dive into real estate. And if they can hit that base cash flow per year, they can leave those corporate jobs. But Scott, I'm curious though, I kind of want to walk through, obviously you're an analytical, you're a numbers guy. Can we kind of walk through that first deal that you had and you know, why did it jump out to you? Why did it make sense to you? Obviously you'd been hanging out with the bigger pockets guys. So you got bit by that bug, but sure. uh, let's dive in. 
So first of all, it was 2014. It was terrifying. The market had been in a bull run for eight years and the recession was 18 months away, according to everybody on the internet. So that was the first, that was the setting of the framework, right? I was like, how can prices go any higher than they are today uh, into, here in 2014? So there are no deals because there's nothing on the market and inventory has compressed dramatically. And I was scared to death. But so I said, okay, what's going to, well, how do I set this up to a game that I can win no matter what? So I said, okay, I'm going to zoom out and say 30 years from now, will this investment be a winner? And can I hold it for the entire time to make sure? Because regardless of whether at the peak of the market, like some folks are telling me on the internet and I'm afraid of, or at the bottom of the market in 30 years, the property is going to be more worthwhile here in Denver. And in particular in this, in these areas of Denver, again, after having met with those mastermind folks and done my 500 to a thousand hours of learning while I saved up the amount for the down payment on this property. I found an agent on bigger pockets. Uh, she actually greeted me like when I introduced myself on the forums and uh, I kind of like, wrote a little post and said, Hey, I'm new here. I'm investing in real estate and all that. And so a couple of agents responded. And so this agent pinged me back a few months later, which she's like, Hey, here's a duplex right here. Might be perfect for you because it's a home path duplex, which means that it's offered. It's a it was a foreclosure. It's offered through Fannie Mae, and investors cannot buy this for the first or cannot offer on this for the first thirty days because Home Path wants a owner occupant to be in the property. So I had a pretty good advantage at the time. No one else was looking to house hack, and so I didn't have to compete with investors. And I brought along. It was a little less hectic than it is today, where you know I had two weeks on this one to think about it before I had before uh, the it opened up to investors or whatever. And so I brought one of the guys from the mastermind group. I took him out to lunch and asked him to walk the property with me. Basically, he was like, "This is a winner. Um, you should buy this." And so that was what I needed to kind of get pushed over the edge for transacting. It was a two hundred and forty thousand dollar duplex. Each side rented for eleven hundred dollars. The other tenant that I ended up putting in there paid eleven fifty because they had two cats which I thought was great. I brought a roommate for 550. So that roommate and I later went on to partner on multiple future properties. We actually put this property into the portfolio and now have owned them all jointly. And now, you know, hindsight 2020, right? Like 2014 wasn't the top of the market. Denver continues to explode. And so people who are maybe in that same position now, right? Like everything is crazy. I know I've got friends around Boston. I'm living in Austin, Texas right now. People are bidding eighty to $100,000 over asking on houses and still missing out on them. Like, I guess, what do you say to people who are maybe in those same shoes and just feel like, yeah, I hear you, but this is different? Well, first of all, it's it's. You, I believe that in a practical sense, if you're starting off on this journey, you know, if you if you have two million dollars to invest and you save ten thousand dollars a year, right? You have an all or nothing shot with that. You can't afford to dollar cost average over the course of many years or whatever. But in a practical sense, what most people are going to do is they're going to save a little bit per month, whatever a little bit is, and they're going to gradually increase that amount. And that's your fundamental. That's your whole thing for Fi. And so the game becomes not how do I invest in one giant move that's going to make or break me, but how do I sustain a system of investing over my journey to FI, which could be 5, 7, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever your model or back of the envelope math tells you it's going to be the case. So for me, it's like how, if I'm going to make one-time investment in real estate, it's always a terrible time to make a one-time investment in real estate. If I'm going to buy consistently over a period of years, it's always a good time to continue to implement my system. So that's that's how I think about it. And I'm gearing up to make another purchase right now, or at least another investment. I may invest, invest with a syndication or I may buy the property directly, but I'm gearing up to put more money into the real estate world right now. 
because that's part of my plan. I buy like once every two years. Last three years, I haven't bought a property because I ended up becoming CEO of this company and I I couldn't I couldn't devote enough time to it and I just piled up a lot of cash and all that kind of stuff. But I'm getting back into it now as my as I'm getting the hang of this, I think, a little bit. So that's the first answer to that question. The second one is, is how do I actually find a deal when there's literally nothing on the market, right? And so that's a tactical question, I think, not a strategic question. And I would say for that, I would look at the properties that have sold in the last 180 days, not the properties that are live right now. If you go on the market and if properties are transacting in two days, then the only properties you're going to look at right now is happens to be the one that got listed in the last two days, or it's the properties that are horribly overpriced or something horribly, horribly wrong with them. So that's going to, dis- that's going to discourage you immediately from even looking at the market. Instead, look at the properties that have sold in the last 90 to 180 days and say, like, were there 10 winners in the last 180 days that have sold in my market? Mm-hmm. And if there's 10 winners, then you know that once every two and a half weeks, a property is going to come on the market on average. It could be more, it could be less. That is your winner going forward. That's a reasonable assumption to make. And that's what a good deal looks like. You say, is that a good deal for me? Does that make sense with my long-term strategy? If so, then you begin going fishing. You just sit, set up all your things. You get pre-qualified. You talk to an agent who sets you up with a search. So you get notified as soon as that property comes in the market. And then you hook the line as soon as uh, you get a bite, as soon as you get a deal. And you know you're going to lose a couple of them. But over the course of six months, you should be able to land your winner if you're offering. You're not making a rush decision, but you're offering basically instantaneously when these properties come on the market, saying, barring a catastrophe in the inspection process, I've already done my research and this is a winner. I'm going to drive it that afternoon and submit my offer at the, at the right price. This is pivoting a bit, but I know that I just want to cover, I mean, you have just so many things we could dig into, Scott, and I want to be respectful of your time. What was kind of the genesis or what, why did you want to write a book? And could you tell us a little bit about Set for Life? And actually, just side note, I gave Set for Life to my friend a couple of weeks ago. Just He just finished it today. So it was the best book he's read. And now he wants to change all this stuff about finance. So all right, Scott, talking, talking about impact, man, you're, you're Thanks killing for the it. Plug. But, I, <laughs> but I, I would love to hear kind of, you know, you were young when you wrote that book. What made you think that, hey, I'm Scott Trench and I can write this book that no one else has written before and I'm going to make an impact? Yeah. Well, I think I, I thought a couple of things, which I still think are true. I wrote the book at the time because first of all, I had I believed that I had, I believe that there was nothing out there for a median full-time wage earner, young person to go all out in pursuit of financial independence and achieve it in a very reasonable period of time, 10 years very likely, maybe even five, depending on if you get lucky with a couple of pot shots here and there with some of that stuff, or you have a, a good income. So uh, that that was first. I, I thought there's a lot of theory out there, but there's not a lot of like how do people actually translate that to literal action that they can take and frameworks for achieving that. So that, that was the first reason why I wrote it. The second was at 27, which is only a few years ago, I, I really wanted to tell people exactly how to live their life very forcefully, which seemed like a good idea. That doesn't no longer seems like a good idea any, <laughs> anymore. Uh, but that was how I was thinking at the time. And so I, I read, reread the book every once in a while and I'm like, ooh, I really said that pretty forcefully. Like I, I use the word ridiculous a few times here. I'm not sure ridiculous is a good word to describe very common life choices um, <laughs> that people make all over the country. So I wouldn't change a word because I think what's great about it, or what I, what I like about it when I look back is that's how it was for me at the time. It was an all out impassioned journey to the other side. And I think that's necessary to get you over the hump. If you can do that for like three, four years to get one, two, three years to get things kicked off, you're going to be coasting. You're going to be on the other side of the slope where your assets are working for you and your, your, your foundations are all set where for the rest of your life, even if it takes you 10 more years to actually achieve fights, it's, it's a constant. It's just going to happen on its own as long as you don't 
blow it with, you know, by disrupting your income or having an event or making a, a dumb decision there. Um, it's just the process will naturally carry it, carry it over. So I think that that's a necessary path there. And then the third reason that I wrote the book is I had a devastating foot injury, not devastating, but like a bad foot injury that, that caused me to get 11 weeks non-weight bearing. And I was like, well, I can spend this week playing video games and getting very fat, or I could write a book and compile all my thoughts into that. So those are the three reasons why I wrote the book. Well, I know the book has definitely impacted a lot of people. I mean, I've I've ran across several people who read it and was just like completely changed my life. But and I think, you know, the verbiage that you're using, although you might not want to have that conversation in real life with somebody and use the words <laughs> quite like you did. And but, you know, I think a lot of times we need that and it comes across a lot better, obviously, when you're reading it. But with that kind of verbiage is a lot of passion. And I'm curious, obviously, we love highlighting all the wins. But, you know, when you were first getting started was there ever a moment where maybe you did something or had a bad deal or something just went away where you thought, you know what, maybe I made a, maybe I'm in over my head. Maybe this isn't going to work. Or was it always like you had a great deal out the first bat. And so it just happened to kind of work at the first and then you saw it working and you believed in it. You stuck with it. Well, yeah, I, I think, I think that there's lots of little nuances along the journey where I made little screw ups and those kinds of things. But honestly, I don't think I had a big catastrophe or event. I think I had a huge market tailwind during the entire period. I think property values soared, stock market soared, my career soared, right? Like all of those things went went generally speaking right for me and they have for a large number of other folks who have been trying to work towards fire over the last 8 to 10 years. Who knows if that continues in the future? And I'm very kind of terrified that that might happen. I carry a large cash balance spread across several different currencies with those types of things. I you know, try to be very conservative with my capitalization and my career and spending and all that kind of stuff. But like, you, you, never, you never know what those types of things. But I, honestly, I think, no, I didn't have, and, and I didn't invent a lot of this. Like, like I mean, I, I just took pieces that I learned from other places and compiled them into my, my formula and approach. So I don't know. I, I, I can't say honestly that I had a huge setback on the journey Although it's been hard and challenging, required my best efforts with it. I think that the strategy behind it has provided a huge tailwind, along with all the other things that have gone right. And I think you'll probably agree with this, Scott. It seemed like the type of guy who's like a you know one percent better. Small steps are equal big wins, and it's not like you just bet on Bitcoin in 2012 and now you're a billionaire or whatever. Like you're taking these small strategic steps, but you know when we step back and just list off your achievements, like for a podcast intro, you're like, whoa, how did I you know do all that in the past? seven years. I'd love to kind of hear the next thing we haven't really talked about. You know, you wrote a book because you didn't want to play video games. It's literally making a a choice that simple. You're like, I'm going to do this instead of that. It's taking that first real estate deal. How the heck do you become the CEO and president of Bigger Pockets? I remember when we first met, you were working at Bigger Pockets. You had just released Set for Life. This was at Camp Fi. I turn around, turn back around six months later, and all of a sudden you have ranked up monumentally. And now you're controlling a huge company that's been growing at an insane pace. Well, you nailed it. It's 1% better every day. I just try to get 1% better every day. I have a little goal sheet that I write down exactly what I'm going to do every day. I have my three top goals for the quarter. I, I have my five-year vision. I have my one-year plan. I have my quarterly goals. I have my, I break that down into weekly, weekly, 13 weekly goals. You know, I don't always, I, I kind of do that on the, on each week rather than in, I'm not that rigid with those types of things, but I'm pretty rigid, right? Like, and I have my, my daily actions I don't always complete them all, but generally I do. And I try to get 1% better every day. And so like there, again, there was no event 
in this continuum of joining bigger pockets and becoming CEO. It was just the stakes got higher 1% every day. And so like, then you find yourself in front of like a conference of thousands of people, like a thousand people on the stage. And you're like, how the heck did this happen? Right. It's just, oh, like we grew a little bit every day with this flywheel that we just keep pushing to help people and people really like it. And so I don't... I don't really have a better answer for you than that. It's just every time there's been a problem, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go read a book and try to figure out a framework to solve that problem. Or I'm going to make a decision quickly based on something I already know and just keep learning and, and improving bit by bit. And so when it came time to bring on our partners with with uh, the private equity guys, that's when you know it was, it was me and Brandon Turner were the two guys. Brandon Turner is the host of our podcast, for those who don't know. And you know, Brandon, I don't think wanted to do the job of managing or leading the company at that time. I wanted it. I stuck my hand up and tried my best. And so it was kind of like I, I joined the right time, got lucky with a, with a startup that grew and just kind of did my best to, to get constantly better and, and improve so that when the day came, the choice was, let's give this kid, this idiot, a, a chance to, to go do it because he seems like he's trying his best and, and generally is, is got more of it figured out than not with some of these things. So I think that's how that would be how I would articulate it. the event. Obviously, I think that would like if there was an event, it was the moment that we decided to go through that process, and that's obviously as you know, president of a company leading that is is a big is a big deal. I guess a better question to kind of get to the heart of where I'm going here is a lot of people who start out and you know start to get early success, they're typically yes men or yes women. They're taking every opportunity that comes their way. Are you still like that or have you been like that the past few years or are you more strategic and use no's appropriately? I think yes man is the wrong word. I okay. I I was throughout that entire process entirely I am entirely loyal to shareholders, customers, and in general the overall group of employees of the business. And that starts with shareholders, right? That's the fiduciary responsibility of, of, of a CEO or any, any, any employee, right? Is your boss, your shareholder, whatever. So is 100% loyalty to the interests of Josh Dorkin, the founder of Bigger Pockets, throughout every part of that process. And then we brought on additional partners. It was the entire group of shareholders, inclusive of Josh and the new partners, right? And so that's not just me being a yes man. How many times I disagreed with him violently, not violently, but like vehemently, right? Like, you know, and and, to, and 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 with that kind of stuff and spoke my mind. It's not a yes man thing, but it's a it's certainly a a absolute loyalty with the best to the best of my ability at every moment in time. One thing that's jumping out to me when I'm listening to this is kind of putting my shoes and like if someone else who doesn't really know about the financial independence space, that they, they hear this episode and you start telling them like, what's the point? It's like, well, people are trying to get to a spot where they don't have to work anymore. They're like, well, this guy sounds so driven, sounds smart. He's, he's climbing up this ladder. And I think that's actually true across the space. Like, you know, it's pretty rampant. There's a lot of very successful, very driven people. So what I'm trying to get at is the question is, do you think you're capable of slowing down? Do you think you're capable of stopping working? Or do you see that as kind of a cornerstone of who you are and it is just going to be that way indefinitely, even though money isn't a top priority, like you can't cut that part off. Growing up, like this is how I was in high, like in high school, right? Let's use that. Like in high school or college, you work, 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 work. I, you know, you're in all these classes. I'm trying to take the advanced classes and play sports. And it's, it's a 12 hour day every day. And in the summer, I completely just, I work out and I play video games all day, every day for the entire summer. So I know I'm very capable of completely lapsing into 
doing absolutely nothing for a very long period of time and you know gaining 30 pounds while I'm doing that 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 is not I have not I have no doubts that that's that's the thing I'm not a machine with that it's just you keep going and you set your schedule and your goals and you just make sure you do them every day and some days you miss them but you're never off track for more than a few days with that in terms of goal setting habits that type of stuff what do you have any tri- tips or tricks cuz it sounds like you're you said you get most of your most of your goals done which is probably a few and far between thing that people can say you're shaking your head right now but do you have tips or tricks to kind of power ahead when you have a crappy day or you feel like you're not getting something done or you know how to shift this priority to the top of the list and actually start working on it yeah yeah i would say i don't necessarily get all my goals done but i always i i i rarely go more than a day in a row two days in a row with without making some kind of progress towards my next goal. That would be a better way to phrase it. So I'm often setting too many goals or inappropriate or, or goals that I didn't change or I'm quitting something, but I'm I'm rarely not working towards my goals in some sort of fashion on a day-to-day basis. It's always moving forward. I'm always doing at least one thing typically to move my, my next goal forward in some small way, whether it's just even sending an email. Sometimes that's the most important thing to get that going. That would be my thing. And my tip for that would be start with a vision, it sounds cheesy and and don't like overthink the vision. People are like, oh, I need a whole day. But like, no, next time you're feeling good, I call it peak state, like after a workout or after your coffee or whatever it is, once you're feeling good and enthusiastic, be like, okay, great. I am going to just like write down in two paragraphs in 12 minutes or less where I want to be in three years, five years. And then know that it's going to move and just revisit it every week or every time you're feeling great for the next couple of weeks. Until it's, and then that might go on for three, four quarters. And once it stops moving, you kind of know what you want. And simultaneously, begin building a plan to your first version of the, the vision. Build a couple of year-long goals and just don't like overthink this process. Don't spend five hours on it. People like oh, build up this thing to be a huge deal. No, just spend the time, make them malleable, but begin working towards them immediately. And then when they change, because your vision changes, you're like, you know what? I don't really want to live on the beach in five years. I want to live in the mountains. Great. Now you just update that, your vision, your vision just completely updated and it's gone and it's done. But as long as you always have that picture of where you're going and concrete steps that you can do today to begin taking tiny bits towards it, I think that's, that's the key. And then tracking it religiously, I think is, is also another thing. I, I track it in this document every day. Scott, that's a great breakdown of the things you're doing to be like very strategic, very, you know, like planned out. But what about the things that you necessarily can't plan for? Maybe even like whether it's bad or good luck. Yeah, so I think I think that that's where it comes down to like one of the things that I think is unfair about my story or whatever is the fact that I joined a startup called Bigger Pockets, became the CEO. We brought on partners. I made a huge bonus when we did that and I'm now the CEO. And so is that repeatable? No. Not for everyone, right? But what I think you can do is you can say like, can you build a system that will move you towards FI automatically? And then layer in op- bets on top of that that have the possibility to dramatically propel you towards your goal, right? And so that's like, hey, I I spend this much, I save this much, and I invest. And if I can, if I make a conservative assumption about what I'm going to invest, I'll reach my goal of financial independence or wealth in 15 years. Now, on top of that, every quarter I'm going to make some sort of side bet. I might start a, a small business with a thousand dollars and see where that goes. I might spend some time, you know, I, I might, you know, nine out of 10 businesses fail. So that means you start 10 businesses, right? And if you can do that over two and a half years, if a quarter, but one every 90 days, you're starting and trialing a new new thing. On average, you're going to have something that might produce a thousand or 2000 a month if you're intentional and methodical about it over that time period. So I think it's, I think it's understanding like, yeah, everybody who achieves FI in a re- very short period of time is going to get lucky in some way. Is that going to be you? how can you set it up so you can't fail 
with your formula, and then you're layering in possibilities to win on top of that would be a, the, fr- the framework I would I would posit to folks. I think I've heard you also talk about like positioning yourself to receive luck. I think that's just so important. And that's totally what's happened in my story. Mm-hmm. Scott, you're saying that's happened in your story. You just got to be positioned to receive luck. If you're, if you're not in a position to get lucky, then you will never get lucky. Yeah. Your business, you, your business cannot take off if you never tried to start it, right? You, exactly. you, you cannot meet that person that is going to be the next connection, you know, at home playing League of Legends. By the way, I play a lot of <laughs> video games, including League of Legends, but I just, you know, also try to, there is some time to unwind with all that. It's not, you know, maniacal, but yeah. <laughs> well, Scott, this has been an absolute treat. I'm so glad we could finally get you on the podcast. I feel like I've known you for a while, been following your journey, and it's just been an explosive one, man. So thank you again. And for those who want to connect with you, Bigger Pockets, all the stuff that you're doing, where are some of the best places they can do that? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at, at Scott underscore trench. You can find me on Bigger Pockets. You can just search in the search bar. I'm one of the users, obviously, on the platform. And yeah, those are probably the two best places to find me. Yes, Scott, thank you again for coming on the show. ton of wealth of information. I know a lot of people have looked up to your story. And like you said, maybe they can't recreate it exactly, but you give them a lot of the tools between you and the Bigger Pockets community. They've got a lot of tools where they can go and make their own version of it. So thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It was fun. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thebuyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. <laughs>